recording to this i'm now live hello ladies and gentlemen welcome to another bald explorer reading live broadcast reading the wisdom of the fields by hj massingham hello to you hope you're all well thank you for joining me this afternoon we've had rain we've just had a dousing of proper rain it's sort of stopped now but we have had some real rain and i am sure Neighbours and local people in the area are going to be absolutely thrilled to have some water on the garden. Um, I know that my little meagre selection of plants in my front garden, which mainly are mint and um, hollyhocks uh, and a, a rhubarb plant, was desperate for it. But uh, yes, so there we go. We've had rain. You can just imagine the plants going, ah, oh, lovely. <clears throat> so that's all been good. I've got a glass of water here. Uh, which is nice. So, um, good afternoon. Welcome along to another live. Um, good afternoon, Steve G, the lovely Julia, Turbo Stream, Ed Loud, Cynthia Pate, Morden Lewis, Joseph Newman Adventure Vlogs. Good afternoon to you. Um, Turbo Stream, Diana Rolf. Hello, Richard. He, she says, uh, John F. Good afternoon. Um, Turbo Stream, we had a drop too. Ed Lau said, rain, my goodness, warm still here, but I can see the clouds are heading this way. Uh, and uh, Audrey Forbes is also out there too, which is grand. Guten Tag. Oh, says Morton, yeah, Guten Tag. I, think <laughs> I read that again, literally, didn't I? Um, so there we go. I had a, a little message from uh, Joseph Newman Adventure Vlogs asking me a question about connecting a microphone to GoPro 7 via Bluetooth. I didn't know you could do that. I don't, I've never done that. So um, I can't help you on that one because I've never tried it. I didn't know that there was Bluetooth in a GoPro, but if there is, you know better than me. Um, and I use DaVinci Resolve, which is free to download, but it is quite a heavy program. So um, it takes a bit of getting used to. Michael White, good afternoon. Ben Reeve, good afternoon. Linda Kane, nice to see you. Yes, great to see and smell the rain. Stood out in it. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, Ed Loud, funny thing, we were entering, entering Grandad's, oh, entering Grandad's ashes earlier today and his ashes went in to join his late wife. A lovely sea-like breeze came upon us. Ah, how lovely is that? Well, we are um, looking at the wisdom of the fields and going to try and finish this uh, chapter, chapter one, which is talking about a Kentish countryman. And if you remember, this was this bloke called Murray who worked his fingers to the bone and seemed to enjoy it. And he picked up all his knowledge from just experience, really. Uh, so fascinating thing and and i think the last part of this bit that we left him was where massingham the author was just sizing up um giving a synopsis of his life um lee lawson hello a trickle of rain at last makes the garden smell lovely petrichor the smell of drain oh pet petrichor is the smell of rain on dry earth. Aha. The smell of rain is life-affirming. Yes. Especially after such long amount of time without it. 
So um, we'll carry on with this uh, summing up. Now, again, I wasn't reading terribly well yesterday and I hope I read a bit better today. It is a little bit more... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, literary than some of the other books that we've, we've read. Um, so we'll see how we get on. So this is talking about Murray. It says, Murray not only took the simple pleasures... In the vernacular buildings of Kent, the tile hanging, the weatherboarding, the mellow roofs and the colour-washed walls, but he also associated them with the face of nature. The warm blend of nature's and man's contributions was English country. But his attitude was never the merely picturesque. Unless the building was a serviceable one, it didn't please him. He had lived too near the reality of dark rooms, cramped space and leaking roofs to detach them from utility and enjoy them as quaint. The modern jerry-built houses, springing up everywhere like red scale on a tree bore, he disliked on the same grounds. They will have tumbled down before they are paid for, he said. His taste was for the solid and substantial, the craftsman's for durability, whether in houses, furniture or clothes. He possessed a, f a few, few pieces of old furniture handed down from his father and his first wife, and on no account would he part with them, even when he had tempting offers in times of special needs. His clothes were the best that he could afford. He himself always brushing them when they were out of use. The same scrupulousness was extended to his work-hardened hands, which he scoured with silver sand. Has anybody heard of silver sand before? The balance of his character saved him from bigotry towards others in his self-denials. The puritanical streak in him might, but for that balance, have turned him into a domestic tyrant, he had strong views of the importance of the husband as the head of the house, and in it his word was law. Yet his wife, the manage yet his wife had the management of his tiny income and his whole confidence and affection. His opinion of women was high but not romantic, and he could not bear to hear men speak slightingly of their wives or discuss their married lives with others. He had, he had a paramount sense of the family and was opposed to married women going out to work. Either they became drudges or neglected their husbands and children. At the risk of offending his employers, he would never permit his wife to work in the big house. If she did the laundering of the fine articles for them and jam making, it was because they were done at home. The economic drive towards the factory of both women and men, he believed, would lead to the degradation of both and in the name of emancipation. In the hop and fruit region of Mid-Kent, it was the custom and condition before and up to the last war for the wives of newly engaged labourers to work in the fields. In February, stringing hop gardens began. In October, the last of the cobnuts were gathered and the women had to crawl on the damp earth under the umbrella-shaped trees to pick the fallen ones. 
The women fastened the lower ends of the strings to the hop poles, and the men on stilts were higher. It was the women who planted the sets for the new hop garden, tied the hops to the strings when they reached the proper height, and when higher, stripped off the lower leaves, which were as rough as emery paper. They were paid at the rate of threepence per hundred hills, each hill being four binds. The men were so miserably paid that the extra money earned by their wives. And at the hop and fruit picking, also by their children, was a great boon to them. But though Murray, who was the who was only one small step above the hop workers, recognised this easing of the econ economic burden, he believed that gang labour for women in the fields would ultimately mean servile labour in the factories. Anything that tended to loosen the ties of the family meant a breach in the Englishman's castle of independence. His kindness to his children stopped short of indulgence. They learned to obey him and not to be afraid of work. Like the parent birds at the nest, he was for them, leaving home early. Leave it, and they did at fifteen and sixteen. Sorry. Leave it, they did at fifteen and sixteen, but in the full knowledge that what they left was home, and of the welcome waiting on them for their periodical returns, they took with them this triple counsel: never do anything you're ashamed for us to know, never talk about one workmate to another. And never buy anything you can't afford to pay cash down for. Well, I think that's actually very good. What about that? Let's just look look at that triple counsel. Never do anything you'd be ashamed for us to know. I wonder how many kids out there these days, or when I say kids, I mean young young adults, eighteen, twenty-year-olds going into work would ever. Think of the same thing. Never do anything that you'd be ashamed for the parents to know. Never talk about one make one workmate to another. That's always good advice. We often have confidences with somebody about somebody else, and you often get that feeling. Well, if you're saying that about me, what are you saying、um, to him about him? If you see what I mean. Didn't didn't say that very clearly, but I think you know what I mean. And never buy anything. You can't afford to pay cash down for. That's a fascinating one, and and that is actually something I live by. I've hated any time that I've been forced to put anything on the HP. I cannot bear it. The mortgage, of course, was the only thing that I put on、uh, on a mortgage. But、um, so if I want to buy a car, I've always I've always had relatively old bangers because that that's all I could afford.、Uh, I would save the cash. But it meant you treasured it. You treasured those things instead of, instead of, you know. I think a lot of youngsters today just think, oh, well, we'll just get it on tick on the never never, and you don't really appreciate it. I mean, look at all those at the beginning of the year. You always get those adverts from people selling sofas. Buy this sofa. Buy now. Pay next year. And you think, yeah, but by next year time comes that sofa's so knackered. And you're going to resent having to pay for it.、Um, so that's a, that is a fascinating thing. Turbo Stream says、uh, I try to live by those three things myself, and、um, I try to live by those. I would say, 
perhaps the only one is the don't talk about one workmate. I think sometimes we do inadvertently say things about somebody else that actually if they were in the room you wouldn't want them to hear and I don't mean to do that but sometimes you do it because you're meaning you're meaning well or you're trying to discuss a problem that you're trying to get over I think but you know that's a, that's a di difficult one isn't it much as he had suffered from the relentless and the high-handedness of his employers he deeply regretted the decline of the aristocracy and landed gentry gentry and the sight of their estates reduced to beggary by death duties if Victorian and Edwardian estate service was despotism, is that how you pronounce it? Despotism? Des despots? Despotism? It was seldom other than benevolent. It was seldom other than benevolent. Oh, that's interesting. And he could see nothing to take the place of the landed estate but the plurocracy that did take it. It vexed him hard to see good land going for building sites. My God, you know, we're talking such a long time ago and here we are, good land is being turned into building sites all over the bloody place. And the London business map, aping the country gentleman and robbing the land through the lack of understanding it. In his long working life, he had encountered many examples of the authentic gentry who identified their lives with the interest of the land and the village. He saw them being driven out and their places usurped by rich men with no stake in either, but with the strongest possible interest in their own importance. Cobbett had watched and thundered against the same thing half a century earlier. That is fascinating. That is so fascinating to think that, you know, I'm making my videos and bemoaning this and th th it is not new and what these people somebody like murray was must have made of today would be you know would be absolutely uh, probably unprintable from exactly the same point of view murray was shocked at the overrunning of the home markets by foreign produce well imagine his dismay now in the last year of his life, when he was living on the smallest income, he had for years, and for the first time during that life, had to buy all his green stuff. He ver vehemently approved the proposed tariff on French vegetables. Vehemently, vehemently, not vehemently. He vehemently approved the proposed tariff on French uh, vegetables. When it was objected that it would increase the price for them to the consumer, he replied that, poor as he was, he would rather pay it than help to ruin the English grower. I like this man. I like this man very much. With his pittance, he would buy nothing but English meat. He had had plenty of opportunity for noticing how the growers of Mid-Kent barely cleared their expenses in the prices they got for produce, often charged in the shops four, five or six times greater. It stirred his country blood to almost bitter heat that the producer should be giving it away all along the line 
to the distributor. His daughter, I wonder what he'd make of supermarkets. His daughter's husband told him of a book by Henry Ford, professing that the English climate and the English farm were totally unsuited to the growing of wheat. It would be much more economic to leave it to America to grow it for us with cheapness and efficiency. This was heresy to him. Remembering the fine harvests of his youth, he refused to argue upon high finance and economic theories. His deepest instincts instincts recoiled from such abstractions. The homeland could produce the best wheat in the world if the farmers farmed it properly and were paid a fair price for it. I um, had a, a lot of flack from um, people in the videos that I've recently been making where I have criticised the farming practices of today. Not individual farmers per se, but the farming practices that we have and the monoculture. And I've been told that things like, well, you know, you've read a couple of books and now you're an expert type thing, or go and work on a farm and you'll know how hard it is, um, and things like that. And, um, but when you read something like this, does it not grip you here in some way to think th that the monoculture and the globalization of farming which is such a different type of business than the production of widgets or, or whatever uh, motor cars and and non-organic things that when you're dealing with something that is organic that is in the countryside that is changing the shape of the land and the landscape that that is not a business in the same way as just having a factory where things come in one end and go out the other and nothing has changed farming changes that landscape and and this 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 is so so this is this is talking to me so in so intimately and so um um personally as well he was cruelly murray this is was cruelly overworked all his life his roots were always being severed when they had attached themselves to new soil and he never attained the ambition of his life a small place of his own yet he was not an unhappy man too honest to save sufficient to buy one and too conscientious to start on borrowed money, he found his satisfaction in tending the property of others. His pleasures were the Kentish countryside, and he had too much to occupy him ever to be bored. His best years were when he was farm bailiff, for such was the call of his blood, and his attachment to animals lightened his lot. Dogs and horses he could do anything with, and the dogs followed him away from their owners. When a bobtail sheepdog of his master was sold, it went frantic with recognition of him years later in Tunbridge Market. A plainness and even sternness in his character 
reminds one that the English countryman comes from a mixed religious strain, the Catholic of penance and pageantry, fast and festival, the Puritan of a harsher metal. That he changed over from chapel to church showed him to be not too rigidly moulded by either, and the goodness of his creator was his real faith. He who had known hunger as a child was truly thankful, truly thankful for, a, for a sufficiency, and there was, and there was always English country and his skill to make it fruitful. Of, of such were the makers of the English land, no less obscure and memorable than the masons of the churches, manors, market halls, farmsteads and cottages. Others directed and finally repressed them, but of the green mason we know as England, they, with nature, were the builders. What about that? That is powerful stuff. That is that is uh, that is what the, I was hoping the essence of this book would be. The biggest worry, uh, Michael White says, is the genes they are altering with our food. Totally agree with you. Absolutely. Um, I'd love to share a lunch with this man. He sounds absolutely grand, doesn't he? And and the thing is, I reckon if we did, he would have no truck with us in our wasteful lives that we we have now. No matter how what we think our lives are. I'm sure that his hardships would have tainted his his outlook and think that we, you know, sitting here doing this would be probably um, such a waste when we, we could be out farming or something. Um, Beware of Henry Ford, says Cynthia Pate. Farm work is difficult, but satisfying when it works. Scary when it doesn't. It's yes, I, I that's probably true. Um, just thinking, how many more of those country estates have gone with World War Two? Yeah, have never had anything on credit, says Linda Kane. Just went without if I couldn't pay outright, mortgage only. It does something to you to live that way, doesn't it? It it gives you a real appreciation of those things that you have. And I think I've told this story a few times that when I moved into this house, which I've been in for 30 years, um, we didn't have a washing machine. We had a, a, a twin tub, second-hand thing, because we couldn't afford a twin tub, uh, a washing machine. And so that is effectively like washing it in the bath, only you had this agitator that did this, and then you would, great big tongs, take them out and put them into a spin dryer, and then you would hang them up. And when we finally as a young couple with a one-year-old, with a baby child, got to the point where we could um, have a washing machine. Oh, my God, the appreciation of, of a machine that would do all that for you. It's, it's overwhelming that a little hardship that you overcome, you know, and you can still keep your house in order, I think is, is you know, it's when you see these people who have four or five kids and yet they've still managed to you know they've they've gone out there and they've polished the blooming doorstep you know you know these wives who are left on their own for hours whilst the the men are down the pits or what have you and uh, of course the kids the kids may well be doing chores and helping 
because they're not sat in front of televisions or on computer games or, or you know, whatever these kids these days do. But that little bit of hardship, it just... There is something that about that, and we've had that most of our lives, but, you know, in the last 50 years, suddenly life has become so easy. I don't know that we, we really appreciate it anymore. I love my twin tub, says Lee Lawson. <laughs> I certainly love the uh, the romance of it in my head, but uh, I'm not too sure that when we had steaming uh, washing in piles and sheets and all of that, I seem to remember everywhere trying to hang them up to get them dry in the winter. It wasn't quite so easy. Um, I, and I think that's one reason why I like having the Essie, the... Uh, like an Arga, like a um, a uh, Ray Ray uh, Rayburn, and we had when we were, when we first moved in here, we put in a Rayburn, a third-hand knackered, falling to bits Rayburn that we I think we were given if we could just collect it, and we were burning coal, and and it, that was the only thing that was heating the house in the same way, and it was, it's something about going through, like an initiation, isn't it? That just makes you realise how little you need. And I think the COVID situation has done just that as well for a number of people. They've realised, actually, we don't need a lot to be happy. Um, so that's interesting. If you have to say for something, you appreciate it more, says Michael White. I completely agree with you. Uh, Graham Case, furniture passed from generation to generation and no one wants it now. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, part of the problem, I suppose, it to 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 be fair to some of the, some of that, and I completely agree with you. A lot of people don't want it because it's like like old fashioned, what have you, incredibly well made by craftsmen. Is that it won't fit into a number of people's houses anymore because the houses are so damn small. They're made so small. Um, it's it is a you know, I mean, it it's sad that you have to reminisce in this way, but. Um, Hey, there we go. Anyway, we'll move on. Um, so this is the next bit. Oh, we're coming up to the end of this particular chapter. And we'll try and get up to uh, get the next chapter going. Kentish countrymen, though descended in a, in a direct line from Cobbett's agricultural labourers, possessed certain qualities not different from theirs, but magnified. This raised him above them. He enlarged his powers, not by security and ownership, but by the exercise of responsibility. Mrs Hubbard, on the other hand, a fellow villager of my own, has stubbornly remained in person and in station the peasant that she began. She was ninety this year, but it has made her very... It has made very little difference to her normal activities. On some market days, she still walks the two and a half miles to the market town, does her shopping, and walks the two and a half miles back again to the cottage where she was born in a magnificent four-poster bed with lustreware and wedgewood round the room. But her cottage, though it fits her like a glove, looks worse for wear than she does. Her hair is her own, but the thatch on the cottage roof is no longer the same as what her father, a notable thatcher, put on. She 
standing by the draw. She standing by to draw out the y- the yarn the yarns, and carry them up the ladder. Up to the war, when we had one of the best thatchers I have ever met. Oh, sorry. I let me. I read that again because I read that wrong. Up to the war, we had one of the best thatchers I have ever met. Just as the eighteenth-century bucks made the grand tour on the continent, so he made the grand tour to Norfolk to learn Norfolk reed thatching. The thatched roof on her cottage is his, but she will not have it compared with her father's, and she. Was his assistant for many years. A thunderstorm cracked the leaded panes of her cottage windows a few years ago, and pieces of the whitewash on the walls kept falling out, showing the rubble underneath. But though she has grown old along with it, nobody would guess that she was nearing her century. She lives alone, though her son, a local farmer, pays her a daily visit. She does all her own chores and cooking, and even making pastry occasionally for my household. It is rich and flaky, unlike the crazy paving slabs supplied by the up-to-date hotels. She would still make her own wines if she could get the sugar. After a glass of one of them out of her store, you have to be careful on a slippery day. She draws her own water from the well. And thinks nothing of sallying forth after a gale to pick up the twigs and branches torn from the trees, as she used to think nothing of twisting the hay bonds with the wimble, for her father, knee deep in snow. When she was eight, she worked in the fields, and when she was seventy, brought up a a Bernardo child, her seventeenth. From what she has told me. She was neither stern nor indulgent with them. Now they are cutting down the hedgerow elms and ashes and the hardwoods of the coppice that surrounds her cottage, and the crash of each tree sounds like another nail driven into the coffin of old England. But when she goes on with her household, but she goes on with her household offices. Tending her ducks and chickens, making her dog comfortable, curing her son's bacon, compounding her herbs, cake making, cooking, going to market, picking up wood, and delivering her views on the frightfulness of the modern world, just as though the old England, out of which she came, would not and could not die. She has seen many changes. She remembers names and cottages which have vanished as utterly as those they housed. She remembers the village feast which sprang out of a medieval Whitsun ale, with her mother cooking all day for the bandsmen and the singers and all the jovial crew, but never grudging it for the liveliness of the occasion. She recalls her mother's weekly baking of flour in the cotton oven—sorry, in the cottage oven. Uh, lost my space. Where are you? Yes, she recalls her mother's weekly baking of flour, ba- baking of flour, not baking of bread, but baking of flour in the cottage oven that she has shown me. It was brought from one of the two mills of the village, whose very sights are now vanished. She recollects that nearly eighty years ago, 
walking to some market town to fetch the malt and hops of the home brew whose recipe Cobbett gave in Cottage Economy. She remembers too Joseph Arch, who came our way in 72, 1872, that would be, to fetch a hundred of the labourers out of their own country into Australia because, because for their manifold skills their country, which had previously taken their land away from them, could only afford ten shillings a week. And she was born at one of the turning points of English history, namely in the decade that fathered the General Enclosure Act that destroyed the peasantry and founded and foundation of that old England whence she came. The England of self-help, a multitude of small properties and a great culture. She, standing at her cottage door in the fading November light, is strangely reminiscent of a nursery rhyme in the shawl wrapped around her angular shoulders in her slightly stooping figure and her deeply wrinkled face. And in a sense, she is legendary because in her independence, her aloneness, her defiance of all the years and the changes, her caustic opinions, well, any road, they can't touch the sun, the moon and the stars, her determination to shift for herself to her last breath and her dumb passion for the home where she was born, she might be taken as an emblem of that working country England whose twilight her long years have seen. Wow. People like that existed. People, you know, they shunned modern conveniences and she's in her 90s i'm not saying everybody lived to their 90s but my god it's 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 just it is um it is stunning because it's almost it is almost not conceivable that people were like that how lazy and easy life is for us Um, I'll come to your comments uh, shortly. This is chapter three. I wanted to get into chapter three. A quote here from somebody called S. Sagar, 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 S-A-G-A-R, Sagar, is it Sagar? Freedom means scope for the individual member of society to plan his life, to express himself, to find an outlet for the creative energy which God has given him and so develop his personality with the minimum of restriction from the offices of the government of that society. We have turned our backs on that conception and are marching away from it. This chapter is called The Country Workman. We stood by the farm gate, the small farmer, the carpenter, builder and I, and talked about village crafts. What killed them, said the farmer, was when the son, educated at a school away from home, deserted his father's trade. When he was brought up on the farm or in the workshop, that is to say at home, he absorbed his father's trade soon after his mother's milk. His father would go away on a job and put his son in charge, 
or his son would do the odd jobs until he was ready to step into his father's shoes. This simple process was the most effective method of linking up family with livelihood, home with work. It preserved the one through its interaction with the other. It was thus a continued guarantee through the interdependence of the crafts with agriculture as the common focus of them all, of the stability and vitality of the organic village or small township. It was too a vocational training which kept the balance between hand and brain and fused character and responsibility with skill. Though it conferred the freedom of expressing though it conferred the freedom of expressing creative energy, it was a freedom controlled by the needs of the local community and the discipline of the home. To this unity between creation and continuity, the modern scene has been consistently hostile. Consequently, industrialism has not contented the worker, be his wages high or low, and the drift is away from personal responsibility. The relationship between father and son, master and apprentice, home and trade is, by preserving that responsibility, part of the timeless order of society. In terms of former piety, it was ordained by God. Every country workman who is something more than a mechanic has two primary endowments, an organic relation with the earth and a hereditary proficiency. I take as my first example a jobbing gardener of very limited intelligence. He is a man incapable of abst- he, he is a man incapable of abstract thought and would make an indifferent witness in a court of law. When he has any information to give, he usually repeats it four times, not only to make quite sure that what he has to say is not missed, but that he himself has got it right. He would take an hour to read a page of a book, to give cogent reasons for the right principles of husbandry. He holds... Sorry, to give cogent reasons for the right principles of husbandry he holds would be as much beyond him as for him who fetched the worm for Cleopatra to grasp why she wanted it. Yet his instinctive familiarity with the laws of nature is profound. I received recently a load of mixed timber for firewood, which this man cut up with me and for me. It consisted of unstripped poles, 12 to 16 feet long, ready for sawing into logs. All these he distinguished and named at once. Not only, not only so, but whether the trees from which the timber came had been saplings or full-grown, and whether before felling they had grown in sunshine or shade. The maple, for instance, has deeper corrugations and is paler in tone if the sun has struck upon it. He could identify one species of log from another simply by striking the two together. The harder woods with white thorn, sorry, the harder woods like white thorn having a crisper and more percussive note 
than the softer. Barks like whitethorn and field maple that in the pole look indistinguishable, he knew apart by the more flakiness of the former. Ash is easier because it nearly always betrays itself by the pittings of the burrowing beetle, while even a novice in wood law could hardly fail to recognise a white thorn pole from its flattened and slightly fluted bowl. In time, he could gather that he could gather that the silvery wash over a corrugated pole, not unlike the tone of Kentish old-dressed oak, revealed a sapling of hedge elm. But this man knew a rotten log, which lacks its silverness, to be elm, not by the bark, but by the cup-shaped markings where the wood had broken off. Concentric red lines in the flesh of a sawn portion were assigned to him of damson or sloe. But though the lines of both are red and semicircular, he never confused sloe with damson. Damson again resembles buckthorn in possessing these concentric rings, but the buckthorn, but buckthorn only on one half of the bowl, the half that has faced the sun. Though buckthorn is not a common hedgerow tree in my neighbourhood, he never made a mistake about it in the pole. Otherwards, he would have known by the stickiness or sponginess of their resistance to the saw, very different from whitethorn that offers a smooth and clean cut. Others again, he would know by the mosaic of the bark corrugations, others by their habit of growth, undiscerned even by the naturalist or by the forester who would understand the growing tree but not the pole. He could even tell the age of a tree from which the pole had been chopped by the differences between the sides and the centre of the sawn portion. What is more wonderful, he has never he was never beaten by logs or poles, even when the bark had been stripped, though he had to think twice when they had been beech or ash. Knowledge of this kind, which verges on the mysterious, cannot be acquired by learning to identify one tree from another, whether standing or felled. It is derived by a certain inborn sympathy, strengthened by habitual observation, with the very pulse of nature, sorry, with the very pulse of natural growth itself. It divines nature's own indwelling pattern of life, which, like the human pattern, distinct from, but allied to, reflects natural law. What this sympathy with the natural material can be is illustrated from this passage in a letter to me from H. E. Goodchild, a chairmaker. I had written telling him of a New Zealand uh, I written I had I had written telling him of a New Zealander who wanted to make Windsor chairs. It would be nice to know what kind of woods he uses out there. I feel I would like to be out there and show him a few of the little things that I have had to find out for myself. 
I can imagine him being just as interested as I was making work a real pleasure and not something that makes you just tired. The small i, i with a dot on it, is significant. The material and the work upon it come from the ego. Sorry, it's because when in the in the writing that, that that I just quoted there, he had signed the I not as a big I, like a capital I, but a, a a small I. Nor was this hereditary and organic relationship with the earth, the very root system of a nation, lost when the country workman migrated to the town. So long, of course, as he remained a craftsman. Of this, I heard a striking instance from Birmingham, Birmingham Turbo Stream. A friend of mine found that there is an old man knowledgeable enough to tune a clavichord. His father had been a piano maker, and he had served a nine years' apprentice under him. Once a year, he went to his father in Gloucestershire to buy beech wood, used for the peg frames, and needing to be of the hardest quality. His father always bought his timber standing, and selected trees growing on a slope facing north, and only on a certain soil and site. The reason for this was because the tree must not have grown up too quick, and the bore had to be in such a position as to be protected from exposure to much rain. The son held the modern cheap piano in contempt and refused to do any work upon it. Though his father actually lived in a town, it is clear that he practiced the customary principle of rural craftsmanship in controlling his material from its natural source to the finished article. But the most eloquent example I know of this inborn and indwelling principle comes from Droitwich, where lives a cabinet maker named Falks. For him, it has become conscious, a conscious part of his philosophy of life. He made a small oval hand mirror in mahogany scrapwood for the wife of a friend of mine. When my wife called for it, he disclosed his belief that the crafts were originally divinely bestowed, and the gifts had ever since been passed on from father to son. In support of this hereditary theory, he told my friend that his grandfather, on his mother's side, was renowned in his day for being one of the finest workers in veneer and inlay in England. He himself had known nothing about the veneer work. One day, he just felt the itch to do it, and immediately and with ease, so he said, accomplished it. Having discovered that no trial and error nor self-teaching were necessary, he derived his proficiency from his grandfather. Through the offices of this friend, I myself have had privilege to listen to Falk's recollection recollections in one of the older back streets of De of Droitwich, where he lives, and has his and has his workshop. All these craftsmen belong to a kind of secret fraternity. It is an unacknowledged, but the strongest bond of all, the strongest bond of all, because it is founded on a common likeness and a common attitude of life. And almost from every moment that I met Forks, I recognised him, for he belonged. 
with all their individual differences of character, circumstances of trade, few and widely scattered as they were, they possessed the same faith, the same integrity, the same love of nature, the same unworldliness, the same absorption in their work, the same modest pride in it. The same resignation to an alien world is theirs, the same quietism, whether the character itself be lively or subdued. A fractional faction of the population as they are, they are a whole civilization in themselves. The beauty, the simplicity and concord of their lives is caught in the overtones of those exquisite folk songs which the piety and labour of a few men like Cyril Sharp and Charles Marson saved before they were vanished, like the craftsmen themselves, into oblivion. Since I knew others of them, sorry, since I knew others of them, I knew Fawkes, though I had only talked for half an hour to this placid, white-haired, gentle-voiced, reflective worker in the woods. Nor is this impression of a distinct community of individuals separated in space but united in spirit mine alone. Shortly after my visit to Droitwich, I received a book, Peaks and Llamas, by a Greek writer and mountaineer, Marco Pallas, whose account of Tibetan philosophy, religion and rural life, is the most penetrating I've read, speaking of the two best silversmiths in Kunyu, in Bash, Bashahar, where the native peasant art is still uncorrupted by modern industrialism, the author writes, They both had a fine presence, typical of master craftsmen all over the world. That profession, with a happy blend of head and hand, the intellectual and the practical seems seldom to be the best type of seems to select the best type of humanity, and its members might be well styled themselves to be the salt of the earth. Their extraction under the pressure of modern industrialism that is overrunning the Orient must be regarded as social, no less than an artistic disaster. So I've I misread that, but I think you get the gist. But master craftsmen did not so much select the best type of humanity as presented all that practised it with opportunity, rarely missed, of becoming so. Um, I'm, I miss... What does he mean there? Let me just reread that bit. But master craftsmanship did not so much select the best type of humanity as present all that practised it with the opportunity rarely missed of becoming so. I'm just trying to find a, a suitable space to stop to comment. This is just one more page. Let's just get to the end of this one more page, if, if I may. But Master Crow... Yeah, I've read that. In the short time that I, I was with Fawkes, he told me a good deal about his father's father, a small yeoman. This yeoman lived till he was 86 and had a mixed farm with cattle and sheep. Not before he was an old man did he ever drive plough upon it. He cultivated his acres entirely by digging, which of course is the very best way of cultivating. Year by year this farmer dug the red marl of Worcestershire like a gardener, 
broadcast his crops on the tilth, and in the winter threshed them with a flail. In spite of such tools as emulated the great race before the industrial flood, he found time to walk three miles to and from Droitwich on market day. For this extraordinary man was no primitive serf fettered by modern fancy to the soil. He was an independent Victorian yeoman who rejected the plough for the spade because he preferred it and deemed it more salutary for his land. His son, the father of the cabinet maker of today, was an all-round farm carpenter and builder. Anything to do with wood on the farm he did, from horses' hames to farm gates, from ladders to plough beams. He also made timber frames in the black and white idiom of the region, the skeleton being left for a year before to avoid shrinking before brick infillings. The bricklayer then came along and laid out not three hundred bricks a day in the modern style, but a thousand. And these cottages cost a hundred and twenty pounds apiece, not as in our times nine hundred pounds or a thousand pounds or uh, four hundred and fifty thousand pounds, as we might have them now, half a million or even a million. In order to live at all in the revolutionary conditions of our age, the present forks had to become a specialist, except in memory, the family inheritance and the continuity of creation. The connections with the land were severed, and when he came to live in a town, and he came to live in a town and with mahogany. The beauty of his work and the fineness of its finish I could see for myself, though his words I was, I was enabled to snatch a glimpse into the past. Oh, sorry, and through his words I was a and through his words I was enabled to snatch a glimpse into the past of the contemporary craftsman who so precariously survives. With him, as with so many others, that past is rooted in the land, it is, of course, with the most of our urban population whose work is now from the office chair or at the assembly line. But the clerk and the machine-minder have forgotten their ancient ties with the land, as Cobbett perceived a century ago. The craftsman, even when his work is remote from it, had never forgotten them. My next meeting with Fawkes was a happy accident. We both converged at one time and at the, and at one and at the same time, he from Droitwich and I from my home upon Harvington Hall in the pleasant parish of Chaddersley Cobbett, east of Kidderminster. There could have been no there could have that there, there could not have been a meeting place more richly evocative of the spirit of English craftsmanship. Harvington Hall, the original home of the fifteenth century Parkingtons, is one of the most romantic of the great moated houses of England, a patchwork of the building prowess of three eras, medieval, Tudor, and the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries. It is a maze of rooms, great and small, closets, libraries, withdrawing rooms, banqueting hall, great hall on the first floor, chapel on the second, kitchen, buttery, malt house and others, many of them wainscoted and with exquisite panelling to the doors. It has many cunning hiding places and is, a unique, and is unique for the number and variety of its decorative wall paintings. But what concerns me here is that it is one of the most singular and 
significant monuments to the continuity of creation in the land. The earliest examples of the friezes, fruit, foliage, mythological figures, trellis patterns, grotesques, worthies and others are medieval and the tradition originally derived from the painted churches is exuberantly caught up by the Worcestershire rendering of Renaissance neoclassicism. A casing of Elizabethan brick enclosed the medieval timber frame surmounted by moulded Tudor chimneys whose loftiness and sight drew the rambling structure together. Once more the building once more the building was remodelled and reconditioned at the close of the 17th and beginning of the 18th centuries. The medieval masons, carpenters and joiners themselves reconstructed the house before their work in its turn was reconstructed. Each period made its own contribution to its own way without the slightest regard for the architectural orthodoxy of the predecessor. The effect the total effect today shows these variations in styles and fashion had enriched rather than confused the unity of composition. They were all so many novelties and experiments within the English tradition of building, because that tradition was maintained and constantly refreshed by new ideas, the informal whole remains a work of art. Folks was employed on the work of restoring this noble house from utter ruin. I saw with my own eyes what he had done. For one thing, he had rescued and renewed an exceptionally fine Queen Anne chair with a lyre-shaped back among the beautiful furniture. For another, he has remade the fragment found in the moat of a three-seated monk's bench with backs sliding to form a table, a most delicate and difficult achievement. But his chief work has been to rebuild the great staircase, which had been removed. All that folks had to go on were photographs and the painted imitations of the newel posts, strings and bolsters on the one side of the staircase. Yet the original wood master who made the original staircase would not recognise the present one as other than his own. It would be hard to find a more eloquent testimony to the timelessness of craftsmanship. And there we'll, we'll end on that the uh, part. Isn't that... Oh my God, isn't that... Um, So telling of our age now, where mass production, cheaply produced for the best profit you can get from all over the world, shipped in, and people who have no pride, few people who have any or no pride in their work today, that these craftsmen, it, it you know, it's... I'm finding that quite emotional, actually, that that description of those people who just understood these crafts and these skills and the, the ability to take different woods, 
and do such amazing things with them that we we in our very clever sophisticated modern highly industrialized world could not do have no connection with wood and raw materials we 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 take chipboard or fiberglass or modern plastics or steel and we we are able to make tat that ends up in landfill so very quickly it can't even be burnt on a fire because it's so toxic with all the chemicals and resins and and things in it and yet these guys for tens of thousands of years understood what work was and it wasn't just backbreaking work for the sake of work it was something that drove them from from that description isn't that just isn't that just how would you describe that isn't that just well it's overpowering i mean i can't even think of the words of of the no the nobility of of those incredibly knowledgeable men but knowledgeable in a way that that made them such amazing craftsmen um and and it and and 90% of the modern human has no concept of that um yeah uh, let's have a look at some of your comments. Lucy Broadwood collected many songs, but got far less credit for it uh, than uh, Cecil Sharp. Was that was Cecil Sharp one of the guys he just mentioned? Was that one of the guys he he quoted just now? I can't remember. Um, the information about wood is fascinating i was reading something only the other day about wood written from the wheelwright's point of view it it yeah how how um that you know the knowledgeable of that guy who could just tell oh yeah this wood was grown this way and this you, you know you become so intimate with your stuff and you just know it you just know the materials it, it's 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 staggering isn't it it is staggering um Edward Moulding sounds like similar stuff. Okay, uh, I drove through uh, Droitwich on Monday, says Turbo Stream. Cracking, you were on form today. Good reading. Thank you, uh, Morton. That's very kind. Anyone watch the repair shop on TV? I don't have a TV anymore, uh, so I haven't seen it, I'm afraid. People live on the surface of consumerism, hence there is no depth. Very true. Today... They are today skilled craftsmen and women. Um, I guess so. There are the real dark ages when we live for the screen. Yes, these are the real... Yes, that's a very, that's a very profound statement. These are the real dark ages indeed because we've turned our back on nature. The very thing that gives us life. The very thing that gives us meaning. It is depressing to know life has become so cheap and not at all cheerful, says Josh. 
and I, I, I agree with you there. Audrey says that the Victorians did excellent brickwork, even under the bridges and in sewers, where almost no one sees it. The pride, yes, the pride. Those municipal buildings, and you ever see those, the boiler houses and the, the polished brass in the boiler house. What has happened to that pride? You drive up to Milton Keynes, for example, and there you will see on the outskirts of Milton Keynes, just off the M, whatever it is, M1, is it? You will see the um, ubiquitous utilitarian boxes that companies like our Amazon and others who have had warehouses or storehouses or whatever, the distribution centres or whatever, that have no beauty, do not fit into their surroundings at all and simply have a function and aesthetic of the people who live there and surround there who pass it, it that is not one of them and it's a shame that we do not make that be part of your building regulations that the aesthetics of because apart from the blind we are sighted species and beauty is what enhances our lives and if only you know more buildings could have a better particularly utilitarian buildings that are all around us if only they could have a little bit more and be less mean like some of the modern houses with the small mean windows and no features around them you know barely a window sill on some of them the, the meanness of this of this construction and we're sold this story that oh but you know people can't afford any more and it, i think that's the same with farming and the same with food that oh well we have to do it this way because it, it's the only way we can keep the prices down i don't buy that now i don't buy that any of that story Mike Stevens says, didn't Cyril Sharp uh, found the English Folk Dance and Song Society and wrote the Penguin Book of English Folk Songs, did he? That, that's interesting. Um, it is not true that skills have been lost. There are plenty of craftsmen up and down this land. It is finding them. I, yes, I guess that there are, and I'm not saying they're all lost, but they're not the norm, are they? Um also, the Victorians used to sign their bricks occasionally with the initials of the builder. Yeah, I did hear a BBC Radio 4 programme about a guy who collects bricks up in Scotland, I think he is, or up north anyway. And he has a, a museum of bricks. And these are bricks from all over the UK. And the, they're bricks, handmade bricks, a lot of them, most of them. And they're signed by the original and... and People go and look at the bricks who need to know whether the building was built by this particular builder or not so that they can help date precisely a, a building. It's fascinating. Um, Josh says, Victorian and especially ancient Rome sewers, Roman sewers are inevitable artworks. Victorian architecture... Check out Martin Zero's Manchester videos, a real celebration. Uh, Michael White says, buildings do have an effect on our mental health. 
yes, I I believe that to be true. Um, Roger Scruton wrote a book about aesthetics and architecture. Um, I haven't read. I haven't read it, but I did listen to a lecture that he has online somewhere about exactly that. Um, modern buildings can't survive when they are made to crumble. Old brickwork is wonderful. It, it's that we just don't seem to realize what we are trashing and what we're ignoring. Some of us do, of course. We in the Bald Explorer reading group, we uh, we do fully understand this. We better stop now, though. Uh, we're lucky that our cottage was built before 1670 and has bits added on in the 1860s. All a bit random, says Lee Lawson. Our previous house, Victorian Terrace, was built on farmland, as was my parents in the 1950s house. Well, I assume that my house here, built in 1875, I think, was on farmland. Uh, or at least market garden land. I mean, presumably before that it was on farmland. Um, I mean, you know, everyone's house has been built on some sort of land which may or may not have been farmed, unless it was woodland. Um, anyway, have a good evening. Thank you very much. Been fas absolutely fascinating today. Really enjoyed today's reading. And um, I hope you're enjoying the book. It's uh, terribly um, insightful and less... Um, flippant than H.V. Morton's work, but by golly, quite powerful stuff. Thank you so much for watching, and uh, I will catch up with you tomorrow for another reading at four o'clock. Uh, no Vogue show this evening. Um, tomorrow's video, I am with uh, a lady called Sonia Dibbins. Dibbin, Dibbin, Dibbing, Dibbin, Dibbin. Um, sorry if I'm getting her name wrong. Um, and she is telling me about the courses she runs on forest bathing that's tomorrow's video uh in the meantime have a good afternoon take care good evening and thank you so much for watching it's been great if you've enjoyed it do give us a thumbs up i much appreciate that till next time bye bye for now bye bye